I picked up a book this past week and I flipped through it. And the book was called Why Men Don't Go to Church. Does anybody know why the number one reason why men don't go to church? The same reason why I don't wakeboard. Okay? You want to know why I don't wakeboard? Because I tried it. Right? I tried it. You ever wakeboard? Wakeboard, you get... You, there's this boat in front of you and you strap your feet into these, this board and you hold this rope and the guy hits it and what happens for me is I'm sitting there and my face goes first in the water and I drink like half the lake. Now, water skiing is no problem. I love water skiing. I'm good. I can get up on that. But for some reason, the wakeboard, I just cannot do it. So I don't wakeboard because I've tried it. The number one reason why men don't go to church, this was a survey, survey done in this book, the number one reason why men don't go to church is because they trade it. What kind of statement does that say about the church as a whole? Is that a problem with the church? Is that a problem with a man? Or is that a problem with, with where, the, where does the problem lie? And I would say the problem lies in, I don't know if we understand the church that God desires. And so listen, if you are a part of Restoration Church, today we're going to talk about family. We're going to talk, talk about church. If you are not a part of the church, if you're here checking us out today, if you keep, came to church today because someone brought you, um, if you are really not big into religion, I'm, I'm glad you're here because neither are, neither are we. We're not into religion. We're into Jesus. And today we're going to hear all about the church And I'm going to actually have an opportunity to invite you to be a part of something amazing. To be a part of something, something that's not always perfect. Because, unfortunately, it deals with imperfect people. But I'm going to invite you to experience God's church. Now, not to experience God's church. I'm going to invite you to be God's church. It's different than the way we normally view church. And so what we're going to do today is, if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to First uh, Peter chapter 3. We've been in a series in First Peter, um, trying to understand what God says through uh, the book of First Peter. If you need a Bible, if you slip your hand up, uh, there's a Raiders fan in the, bra- in the back who'll come and bring you one of those. And uh, we love peoples of all sorts to, uh, here at Restoration Church. Raiders fans, and Seahawks fans, and Seahawks fans, and Seahawks fans. And, um, and so we're going to look at First Peter chapter 3. Um, verses 8 through 12. And we're going to look and specifically see um, the church that God always wanted. We understand that the church sometimes is broken because it's filled with broken people. But I want us to look and say, this is what God calls the church to be. This is what God calls you and I to be. We're not to go and experience the church. We're not to go to church. We are to be the church. And this is what we're supposed to be. So First uh, Peter Uh, Chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. The words will be on the screen behind me as well. And I'm going to invite you, if you are able, if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. You can follow along. and, uh, And here's what Peter says to us today. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless for those, for for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. 
For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's God's word for us today. Would you pray with me? God, we want to just thank you for your grace. I want to thank you for the privilege of being called uh, your sons and daughters. God, we understand that we're not sons and daughters of you because of anything that we've done. It's because, God, you looked, it on, looked upon us and had compassion and mercy and grace. And that you chose us to be a part of your family. And God, I pray as we talk about the church, as we talk about how we're supposed to live, God, I pray that you would give us understanding, that you would help us to understand, uh, God, what you are calling us into. We're not called to experience something or to go to something, but God, you are calling us to be something. God, help us to see that today. God, I pray for those of us who are coming in uh, who need to hear something today, who need encouragement, that God, you would provide it. God, I pray for those of us who are carrying a burden, that God, you would speak to us. And, and, and call us to repentance. And I pray today that you'd help us to walk out of here different than the way we came in. God, we love you and we praise you and we ask this in your name. Amen. You could be seated. He starts this passage out and he says, finally, all of you. We've been in this series where, where Peter's been talking to specific individuals. He said, listen, this is what God has done for you. God has, has called you into a relationship with him. He's chosen you. This is what God's done. In response to that, he's spoken to some very specific people. He had a word for those of us who are in the workplace. If you have a boss, he said, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to submit to your boss, even if they're a jerk, even if they're unfair. He spoke, to, spoke about our role in government and how we are to submit to the government authorities over us. Uh, Peter wrote to wives and said, wives, this is how you respond to your husband. Whether they're a good husband or, or, or bad, you have a responsibility, a specific role to play. He said, husbands, you've got an even more important role to play. As the leader of your house, as the leader of the marriage, God said, here's what you are supposed to do. And now he's going to say, hey, if you call yourself a Christian... This isn't specific. This is to everybody. If you call yourself a Christian, Peter is speaking to you and I today. And he's going to call us to be a certain kind of people. He's going to call us and say, listen, I want you to be a certain kind of people. And I want you to understand this is not a list of things for you and I to follow. He's not saying, here's the things you have to do. Mark it off the list. He's saying, no, I want you to be a certain kind of people. And it's different. This is something that we need to understand you can't do on your own. Like when we look at this list and see the kind of person that God is calling us to be, that is against everything that goes in our human nature. We cannot be that person alone. We need the work of God's mercy. We need God to do something in us. Verse 1 of chapter 3, no, verse 3 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, he says uh, that we experience a new birth when we become a Christian. The new birth means because of what God has done, he's changing us. He's saying, this is who you were before you came to Christ. And when you place your faith in him, you experience this new birth. And God begins to redeem you and change you from the inside out. And that is what is necessary for us to be this type of person. And so what Peter's going to do is because of what God's done, he's going to say there are five traits, five characteristics that a Christian should have. This is the type of person that we should be. If you look in verse 8, they're all right there. The first one, he says, is we are to have a unity of mind. This is where we are to be like-minded. We're to be in agreement. Now, most of us would say, hey, we'd be in unity if everybody would just do what I wanted to do, right? Like, I, I, like I could get on board with being unified if you just do what I want. 
then everybody's good to go, right? That's unity. The reality of it, in a church, there's a lot of things for us to disagree about in church, right? I mean, when you look at a church our size, reality is there's people who vote differently from different political sides. We all have a different preference for our favorite Bible translation. We have a difference of opinions on, on the best way to school our kids. We have a difference of opinion on what kind of TV shows we should or should not watch. We have a difference of opinion about the style of clothes that we wear, about preferred style of worship, about how you discipline kids. That's a touchy subject. And everybody has a different opinion about it. We have a different opinion about the music we're supposed to listen to, about the books we're supposed to read, and on and on and on. Am I right? I mean, the thing is, I want us to understand when he talks about having a unity of mind and being unified does not mean we have to agree on everything. Because there's a difference between unity and uniformity. God's not looking for a bunch of clones. He's not looking for all of you to be just like me. And he's not looking for me to be just like you. To have a unity of mind, to be like-minded, means that we are unified under a single primary purpose. A primary focus. And that is to have the mind of Christ. That is what we're called to be unified under. That all of us, regardless of how we feel about all these secondary issues, we are unified in having the mind of Christ. And what is the mind of Christ? Luke chapter 19. Very clearly, verse 10 says, uh, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. That is the mind of Christ. That is the purpose that he gives us. This is what we're unified under. We're unified under the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that we are sinners. We are broken before God. And God, in his love for us, sent his son Jesus to die on the cross in our place. So that we could be redeemed. So that we could be with God in heaven. That is what the gospel is. Restoration Church, we summarize that statement is to say to know Christ and make Christ known. That is why we exist. That is our purpose statement. And that is what we're asking you to have unity towards. This reason we exist. And all those other things are secondary. We have to be unified under this one thing, this common purpose, this common goal. And the uniformity and all those second, secondary issues aren't necessary because we have this one goal that motivates everything else that we do. I want to clarify, though, just agreeing to that mission is not enough. Like, we can all be in agreement, hey, that's what it needs to be. But the question is, are we actually living it out? Are we allowing that mission that should be the primary thing that we're unified under, are we allowing that to, to lead how we live? To direct our paths. To be the reason that we make decisions. How can we best know Christ and make Christ known? See, what happens is when we live this out, when we live out this, this unity to this common goal of knowing Christ and making Christ known, what happens is we become a, a diverse church, a diversity of people that are unified under a single purpose. And let me tell you what, there's nothing more beautiful than that. There's nothing more powerful than that. To see a bunch of people who are different coming together for a single purpose of knowing Christ and making Christ known. This is something that speaks tremendous value to the world. In fact, somebody said to me, what is the identity of Restoration Church? Like, what is the church's identity? If you were asking me that, I'd say this. Our identity is that we would be a diverse 
community of faith. That regardless of your economic background, regardless of who you voted for in the last election, regardless if you came to church on a Harley or you came to church in a Prius, like, I don't really care what you drove to get here today. Regardless of your ethnic background, regardless if you have everything all figured out in life, if you can commit to pursuing Christ and making Christ known, that's the identity. Is that we've got people from all walks of life coming together in a unified purpose of knowing Christ and making Christ known. And I love this because in the church, this is what it should look like. In the church, you should come to church and there should be people in a demographic different than yours that you would probably never associate with any other area of life. Because what reason would you have to associate with them? There are people in our church who have a past and a background that is different than mine. And I would never find myself in life with them except that we have this common mission, this common goal of knowing Christ and making Christ known. And this is what brings us together. Jesus. And it is so powerful when we understand this, when we have this unity of mind, that no matter where you come from, we're committed to the same thing. You know what happens? See, Jesus, the night he was betrayed, he prayed for us. He prayed for for all of us who would be believers in him because of the disciples, because of the word of God. And this is specifically what he prayed. John chapter 17. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who would believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see what happens when we're one? Jesus prayed and said, if we would be unified under this purpose and stop allowing these secondary issues to to cause disunity, if we would be unified under this purpose, he said that the world would know who he is. Do you understand the beauty and the power of a group of people coming together from all different walks and belonging for the same purpose? Transformation. See, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, I I love worship. I love music. I'm not a musical person at all. In fact, that's why I sit on the front row so nobody can hear me sing. I'm saving you the, the trouble of having to hear me sing. But you know, I love music. And I have this privilege of being up here and I can hear all of you sing. You know what's great? You guys all don't sound the same. There's diversity. Some of you sing high. Some of you sing low. Some of you sing loud. Some of you sing soft. Some of you sing really good. Some of you sing really bad. I'm speaking of this row right here. Just kidding. Just kidding. (laughs) I was kidding by that, by the way. But you know what? When we sing the same tune... Do you know how beautiful that is? Do you know how beautiful it is to hear all these voices who are so different coming together to sing the same tune? That is what it means for us to have unity of mind. And it is amazingly powerful and beautiful. Second kind of person that God calls us to be. He says, uh, verse 8, he says to have sympathy. This means to be empathetic. This means that we can put ourselves in somebody's shoes and we can have an understanding for them and feel sorry for them. This is where sympathy looks like this. You go the extra mile to to help someone out. You do stuff for somebody that you wouldn't normally do for a stranger when you have sympathy for them. You begin to let the little things slide. 
because you're going to have sympathy and put yourself in their shoes. You have a desire to understand their perspective, to walk in their shoes, to understand what they go through, to give them the benefit of the doubt. In fact, you say, well, what does it look like for us to have sympathy in the church? Probably the easiest example is what what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12. He said, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's the kind of person we're supposed to be. That when people around us are in that season of joy, that we're right there with them, celebrating with them. And when they're going through a time of hardship, that we're right there alongside them. We're with you. I'm going through this with you. Listen, we live in a cynical world. And it's easy for us to be callous and insensitive and indifferent to the people around us. But as Christians, we should feel other people's heartaches. We should walk through those heartaches with them. Let me tell you what, your words don't matter nearly as much as just you being present. Say, well, I don't know what to say to somebody going through a hard time. You don't have to know what to say. Just go and sit with them. And your presence speaks a lot more than any of the words that you can share. Third thing he says, this is what the type of person you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be a person that has brotherly love means we love as brothers, we love as sisters. Now listen, I've got five kids. You know what happens with five kids? Once in a while? Very rarely. But once in a while, there's conflict. Once in a while, there's, you looked at me. What? You looked at me, you looked at me. Going back and forth. But you know what brotherly love looks like? You know what brotherly love looks like? Kids are going to fight. That's what kids do. I asked my son permission to share this story. Make sure I acknowledge that. I always try to ask permission before I share a personal story. A year and a half ago, my daughter was over here by 2nd Street Grill. And she thought, I'm going to do a cartwheel. She did a cartwheel and snapped both bones in her arm. Her arm was bent. I mean, it was, it was, ugh. If you're a medical person, you may, I'm not. It was gross. Arms bent. My wife puts her in the car and starts heading to to go get help. And my son sat right next to her. Talked to her. Distracted her. Told her stories. So she wouldn't focus on her arm. So she wouldn't focus on the pain she was in. That's brotherly love. Man, there's going to be times when we fight. There's going to be times uh, that we fight with our siblings. And there's times that we fight for them. But brotherly love means, at the end of the day, I got your back. At the end of the day, I'm going to forgive you, and we're going to stick together, because that's what brothers do. And that's the kind of love that we're supposed to have as Christians. That's the kind of person we're supposed to be. Hey, I got your back. Listen, we may disagree. You may cut me off in the parking lot, and I may not have a nice thought towards you. But I got your back. I'm still with you. You break your arm, I'm right there next to you. Fourth thing he says we're supposed to have, we're supposed to have a, a tender heart. We're supposed to have a tender heart. Now, this is somewhat related to, to sympathy, but means a little bit more than just sympathy. This means that we become compassionate. It means that we not only have sympathy for somebody, but we're actually moved to do something about it. That's what it means to have a tender heart. And I thought, what's the opposite of having a tender heart? The opposite of having a tender heart is a hard heart. 
And how do you know if you have a hard heart? Here's what you do. You look at your life right now. When you see somebody going through hardship, when you see somebody in the church, somebody around you going through a difficult time, what is your response? Are you quick to judge? Man, you dug your own hole. Deal with it. Man, you're so dumb, you made that mistake, and that's the reason why you're going through this hardship. Listen, what's your response when somebody's going through that hard time? Because that's going to show whether you have a hard heart or whether you have a tender heart. Ask yourself that question. Think about your life. Think about scenarios around you. Do you have a hard heart or a tender heart? See, being tender-hearted is not rocket science. Being tender-hearted means you hear somebody going through that, you send them the text message. Hey, praying for you, man, thinking about you. You send them the Facebook message. You go and visit them. You bring them a meal. A simple thing, but a way to say, man, I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. The last thing he says, fifth thing, that the type of person we're supposed to be. He says, we're to have a humble mind. The end of verse 8, a humble mind. Now I want to clarify, humility is not thinking of yourself less than you ought to. Humility is actually thinking of your, not thinking of yourself at all. I mean, we think about church. Church, is church about you? Is there a reason you come to church all about you? Because let me tell you what, if you come to church and it's all about you, you're going to be disappointed. Restoration Church, we're going to disappoint you. And in fact, if you leave Restoration Church and find another church, guess what? If church is all about you, that church will disappoint you as well. You're going to be disappointed if church is all about you. But listen, if church isn't about you, if church is about the people around us, if church is about that mission that we're to have unity of mind, guess what? You create and you have a whole different experience of what the church is all about. It changes things completely. Because instead of thinking about me, instead of thinking about my coffee, instead of thinking about my seat, my preferred worship leader, uh, the, the, the jokes I like to pastor to tell, about the things I like to hear, man, you begin to change the way you think. And say, no longer is it about me, maybe it's God. God, bring someone to me that I can encourage today. God, help me to have eyes to see other people instead of myself. See, being humble means you, you put other people's needs above your own. Instead of prioritizing you and what you want, you begin to think, hey, how can I meet the needs of the people around me? How can I meet them there? Where it's no longer about my preference, but it's about yours, about what God's doing in you. I mean, just think about this. What if you came to a place where there's a group of people meeting and they considered everybody better than them? What if you came to a place, to a church, and everybody there felt like you were worthy and you were better than them and they were going to love you and serve you and meet your needs? Like, who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Who wouldn't feel welcomed and loved when there's a place that welcomes them like that? See, in fact, when you look at these five characteristics, humility is, is, is a necessity for, the, for all five of those characteristics. It's a foundational one. Because you can never be unified under a single purpose. You can never be sympathetic. You can never show uh, brotherly love. You can never have tender, compassionate hearts if you are so preoccupied with yourself. 
Because preoccupation with me, preoccupation with myself, and sympathy and compassion cannot coexist together. They cannot coexist together. See, if we're stuck on, on ourselves, stuck on what I'm doing and stuck on where I'm going and what I'm buying and, and what I'm going to do next, then no longer can we be interested in who you are and what you're doing and where you're going and where you're going next and what you're about. And how do these, how do these character traits sound to you? Yeah. We'll deal with that in just one second. Okay, thank you. Thank you. I mean, how do those character traits sound to you? Begin to think, well, well, those character traits are good, but they're just not my personality. Like, I'm, I, I, that's not my personality. Listen, Pete says this. Peter, this is what he's writing. He's saying, if you are born again, if you are a Christian, that God has begun renewing and changing and transforming you. And the seeds of these characteristics are already inside of you. And they flourish when you keep your mind focused on God. Isaiah 23, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 26 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. The Lord God is an everlasting rock. When we keep trusting God to meet all of our needs, all of our physical needs, all of our mental needs, all of our spiritual needs, then the Spirit of God is released to work in us and to bring these characteristics, these, these, these things that this is what Peter says we're supposed to be like. When we keep our minds settled on God, the Holy Spirit grows those things and they blossom inside of us. And we experience transformation. And we say, man, this humility, this brotherly love, this compassion. I've never experienced this before, but God's doing something in me. God's changing me. And I'm seeing these characteristics in my life. In fact, when we look at the idea of Christian maturity, I mean, I, I, Christian maturity, everybody has a different idea of what maturity is. Uh, well, if you're a mature Christian, that means you know a lot about the Bible and you can just quote Bible verses. Okay. Christian maturity is when you've been in the church for a long time. So if you've got, you know, gray hair and, and dust on your shoulders, man, you're mature. Actually, I think if you ask Peter what Christian maturity is, I think he'd say it's the people who embody these characteristics. Who understand what it means to, to live this way. To have unity of mind. To have sympathy for other people. To have a brotherly love to the church. To have a tender, compassionate heart. To have a humble mind. That's what maturity looks like. Those are the areas we need to pursue. And maybe this is your takeaway today. Of man, I want to be the kind of person that God calls me to be. I want these characteristics to blossom inside of me. And I'm going to do what it takes. I'm going to keep my mind on Christ so he can renew my heart. And I can be the kind of person that God wants me to be. He's going to continue in verse 9, kind of on the same idea. He's going to say, based on the transformation from verse 8, based on being that kind of person, the kind of person that God wants us to be, he's going to change how you respond to difficult situations. It changes how, how you respond to hardships. He says, in verse 9, he says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. 
See, when we're that kind of person, the first thing that changes in dealing with hardships is we don't retaliate when we're attacked. That means when someone does something evil to us, when somebody insults us, when they revile us, when they do something to wrong us, we don't retaliate. Now, the world says, hey, somebody does something to you, you got every right to get right back in their face. I mean, that, 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 and we justify it. We say, well, well, I have every right to retaliate. I'm just, I'm just sticking up for myself. I'm sticking up for Christ. Like, that's what he would want me to do. Well, that's not what Peter teaches. In fact, that's not even what Jesus teaches. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first sermon, probably his greatest sermon. He says, listen, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, he says, punch him in the nose. No, no, wrong Bible version. He says, turn and let him slap your left cheek as well. He says, don't retaliate. Facing hardships, first thing you do is you don't retaliate when attacked. In fact, Peter's going to go further, though. He says, the end of verse 9, he says, But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Facing hardships, secondly, Peter says, to bless those who mistreat you. Instead of retaliating, he says to bless them. Well, how do I bless somebody who's, who's, who's picking on me? How do I bless somebody who's calling me names? How do I bless somebody who's being evil to me? Well, you just look at some of the things that Peter's talked about. You serve them. You, 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 you speak well of them. You pray for them. You pray not for God's justice, but you pray for God to bless them. In fact, he says, this is what you have been called. You've been called to be a blessing. You understand that? You are called to be a blessing, even when people are evil against you. Now, I just want to be honest about how hard this is. Maybe this is a little counseling session for me just to share, uh, kind of confess a little bit before you. You may know I'm a little bit competitive. Just a little bit competitive. So we've got this men's softball team. And we play in the non-competitive league. We play in the just-for-fun league. We play in the league of, let's come and have fun together and have a good time. And then we, we, we do have a great time. But we're playing against this team this last Thursday night. These guys were jerks. These guys were just horrible. I mean, bad sportsmanship, arguing everything. I mean, just, it was horrible. And I'll be honest. <laughs> there was everything in me that wanted me to get in their face. To tell them all the areas that they were wrong. To tell them how foolish they were being. This is a fun league. We're supposed to have fun. And you're making it miserable. But you know what's really weird? I knew I was preaching on this verse this week. You know how convicting that is? To have my blood pressure rising because I want to yell and scream and stomp my feet. But no, I've got to preach about not returning evil for evil. See, there's a quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, if you are suffering from a bad man's injustice, forgive him lest there be two bad men. Ooh, that's good there. So let's get really practical here. Spouses, husbands, wives. When your spouse speaks ill of you, when your spouse says something to you that you think is unfair, how do you respond? Are you returning evil for evil? Or are you blessing your spouse in that moment? 
when you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off? What's the words that come out of your mouth? Is it blessing? Bless you. Or is it a little bit worse than that? When you go to the fast food restaurant and the worker gets your order wrong, are you blessing that person? Or are you expressing your anger and frustration because they got it wrong? Teenagers, how do you respond when your sibling messes with your stuff? When your sibling takes a controller from you? Like, let's get real serious and real practical here. Like, this is what we've been called to. Not to retaliate, but to bless. Now, I know we can take this verse and we can excuse the heck out of it. Well, it's really not that big of a deal because, you know, an eye for an eye. No, listen, what if we took this verse as actually being God's words? And what if we, instead of making excuses, what if we actually did what it says? Listen, we are, as Christians, we are alien in this world. And instead of responding like the world does, what if we took this verse and said, you know what, I'm going to be known for being a blessing. And when people mistreat me, when they do things I don't appreciate, instead of responding like the world, instead of responding like our flesh and our human nature wants to, what if instead we were known for being a blessing to those people in that moment? Listen, when you live that kind of life, That life demands an answer. That life speaks volumes about who Jesus is and what Jesus does in our heart and in our mind. And ultimately, listen, this is what the church is supposed to be known by. This is what you and I are to be known by, is by being a blessing to others. Man, some of you, this needs to be your takeaway today. Because you can think of those scenarios in your life. Of somebody who's mistreating you, somebody who's who's mocking you, who's doing whatever. And you think, yeah, I, I have that tendency to put it right back in their face. Maybe this is your takeaway of, God, I'm sorry for that. God, help me to be a blessing to those. Instead of returning evil for evil. And what's great is not only does he call us to bless, but he also says when you do that, you obtain a blessing. See, when we bless other peoples, it's not just for them. When we live like that, God does something tremendous for us. Verse 10, Peter takes a little bit of a transition, and he's going to quote from Psalm chapter 34. And in fact, dealing with this topic of of, of the, the, the church that God always wanted, being the people that God always wanted, this is a great psalm to look at. Psalm 34, David, he's the anointed king. He's not king yet. He was anointed to be king. And he's been on the run for, 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 for years Because Saul, who's the current king, who David has done very well to honor and respect, he's angry. He's chased David. He wants to take David's life. He's chased him around for years. In Psalm 34, David decides to hide in Philistine country. He tries to hide with with Israel's enemy. And he realizes that's not a very good decision. So what David does is he, he, he pretends to be insane. He pretends to go crazy so that way the Philistines don't kill him. And while he's there, while he's on the run, while he is pretending to be crazy, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write Psalm 34. To write about how God looks out for the righteous. And how God, uh, uh, his hand is against the evil. 
So he's going to give us just a couple of practical things. So this is what you do. He says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days. He says, whoever desires to love life and see, how many of you want to see good days in your life? You want to have more good days than bad days. Listen, Peter's going to quote from Psalm 34 and say, man, there's some very elementary things that if we would just understand and we would pursue, that we would have good days. Listen, this is not, this is not a, a guarantee. It's more so of a principle. If you do these things, chances are you're going to have more good days. First thing he says, at the end of verse 10, he says, Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. See, the first thing, if we want to have more good, de- good days, then we have to do this. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Listen, I just made that up. Feel free to use that as often as you want. Put it on a coffee cup, whatever. Listen, how many of you have said that numerous times in your home? You can't say anything nice. Don't say anything at all. I mean, this is something you learn in kindergarten. It is very basic and it is rudimentary, a basic idea. But listen, how many of us keep burying ourselves? How many of us keep digging holes and creating problems because we allow our tongue to run off and say things it shouldn't say? I mean, this is just, I mean, this is straight up. Like, like this is gold right here. And I don't even have to add anything to it. This is why some of us don't have better days because our mouths run crazy. And Peter's saying, listen, you want to have more good days? Then if you can't say anything nice, just don't say anything at all. Second thing is, if you want to have more good days, he says, verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Number two, Peter says, stop doing what's wrong and start doing what's right. Like, seriously, these are not very deep. These are pretty, like, just basic. He says, turn from evil and do good. Most of us, we would understand the kind of life that God wants us to live. And Peter says, start living it. Just go and do it. And Peter says, if you know the junk in your life that keeps, uh, that, that you're not supposed to have, he says, just get rid of it. Knock it off. Like, this is gold right here. I can't preach any better than this. Just, just stop doing what's wrong and start doing what's right. Man, there's people that come and they say, hey, pastor, and they complain about the same thing over and over and over and over again. I keep having this problem. I keep doing this. I keep doing that. And listen, the simple solution, like the counseling session is done with all I have to say is knock it off. Like, knock it off. That's what you need to know. You need to hear. Stop living the type of life you're living because it's not working well for you. And start turning to the God who can give you a life filled with good days. Do something different. Stop doing what's wrong and start doing what's right. Third thing Peter's going to tell us, Peter's going to tell us about having more good days. The end of verse 11, he says, let him seek peace and pursue it. He tells us, be a person who creates peace, not a person who creates tension. Be a person who creates peace, not a person who creates tension. I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about your life very specifically. And I want you to be honest before yourself. In your family, in the relationships that you're involved in, in your marriage, in your workplace, in your church. Are you a person who creates peace 
or a person who creates tension? Are you a person that always seems drama is always following around? Like, like here's just a little hint for you. If you're a person who's always got drama around you, uh, you've got gossip around you, it's probably not because there's just a bunch of people around you in drama. It's probably because you're drama. It's probably because you're a part of that. And some of you have to decide, I'm not going to be a part of that anymore. We have to decide, listen, I want to be a person who prioritizes peace, who prioritizes calmness. And I've got to decide, I'm going to create peace around me instead of more tension. We want to be people that when we enter a scenario, things get better because we're there. And here's how how Peter's going to wrap this all up. He's going to say, this is why it matters. This is why we're supposed to be this type of person. This is why the church is supposed to be like this. Why it matters, verse 12. He says, for because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. See, this is why it matters. Because God will watch over the righteous. Isn't that good to hear? God's eyes are always on the righteous. Listen, the righteous, let's clarify The righteous are not just those people who live pure and holy and perfect lives. Because if the righteous were just those people, man, I'd be out of it. Most of you would be out of it. In fact, there'd probably only be three or four of you that would say, I'm righteous. And all of you are liars. That's what you are. You're, You're hypocrites, right? The righteous are those people who are walking with God. That when God looks at them and he sees their sin and sees their deficiencies, he knows that they've trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And God knows that the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, covers their sin and covers their deficiencies. And they, he knows that, that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the one who directs their life. See, that's what it means to be righteous. It's not that we're perfect, but that God's blood has covered us and we are pursuing his will, his direction in our lives. Listen, when you and I, when we be the person that God wants us to be, when we be the church that God calls us to be, when we bless those who hurt us, we stop doing what's wrong and we start doing what's right. Listen, when that is you, Peter says this is why, because God cannot and God will not take his eyes off of you. That means that I'm his guy. I'm his dude. He chose me. And he's with me. And he's not letting me go. Certainly there are times when I need to get dropped on my butt because I'm not living the way I'm supposed to be. But even when that happens, I know that he will never leave me nor forsake me. That he's with me everywhere I go. Man, don't we want that? Doesn't it sound great? To know that when we live this way, that God will always watch over the righteous will always be with us. Second thing he says. He says, because of the eyes of the Lord on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. Second thing of why it matters is because God will actively listen to the prayers of the righteous. God will actively listen to our prayers. This is part of that blessing that we talked about in verse 9. There's a blessing when we live this way. I mean, some of us, we said this last week talking to the men. Some of us have prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And we're like, God, are you even listening? 
Well, maybe we need to look at our life. Are we being who God called us to be? Because I don't know about you, but I sure want to have the confidence that God's listening and hearing my prayers. And lastly, the end of verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. See, we can, we can do this because God will stand against those who do wrong. We can live this way, and we can be this type of person, and we can be the church that God has called us to be, because God will stand against those who do wrong. I shared this a few weeks ago, Romans chapter uh, 12. It says, if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Like, I'm just going to be straight up honest. Like, I feel bad for any person who would wrong a Christian. And not just any Christian, but a Christian who would handle it right. Because that person's going to have to deal with God. And I guarantee you, God's going to deal much better with them and more harsh than I could ever do. So let me just say, let me me bring this to a close. I told you in the beginning, I was going to invite you into something amazing. Here's what I want to do. I want to invite you in to the church. Not to attend church, not to do church. I want to invite you to join me in being the church that God desires. Invite you to be the kind of people that he desires. To be people who seek to bless those around us, who obey the word of God, who live honoring lives to the people around us. Because let me tell you what, our city needs it. Our world needs it. We're a broken city. We're a broken world. They're hurting people all around us. And it's not enough for us just to have a knowledge uh, of faith and a knowledge of, of, of this. It's not enough for us to have religious talk. We actually have to live it. We have to say the church isn't just what we do Sunday morning. We are the church. And this is what the church is supposed to look like. There to be a certain kind of people that respond a very specific way to hardship. They're to grow in their faith. And when we live that out, we change the world. Just close with a very brief story. Robert Schuller may recognize his name. He was the the, the leader of the hour, the, the, the hour of power, I believe, on the television. You might have seen on the television. And he had a prayer that he prayed every single day. He woke up in the morning. He said, God, lead me to the person you want me to bless today. Do you understand if we were to pray that prayer, how it would change how we see people in our lives? I mean, understand that. Like, if that was our prayer every morning, God, God, would you lead me to the person you want me to bless? Then do you think that McDonald's worker who gets your order wrong, does it change the way you see that person? Your spouse, when they're arguing with you, when they're, they're in a bad mood, do you think it changes the way you respond to them? The coworker who can't get anything right, the employee who's always late, do you think when you pray that prayer, it changes how you see them? God, Bring that person in my life that I can be a blessing to today. Give me eyes to see who that is. And that allows us to be the kind of church that God always wanted us to be. The kind of people that God always wanted us to be. Would you pray with me?